0: Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, music journalist, and editor-in-chief of The Talk House, author Michael Azarad, and tonight's guest, founder of the indie label Sub Pop and author of Experiencing Nirvana, available now on the iBook store, Bruce Pavitt.
1: Good evening. just want to let you know I brought a Sharpie and I'm up for signing any iPads if you want to purchase some right after the show. Well, this project is essentially a photo journal. But there is some writing, and I'm just going to read to you the synopsis of the book here, and then we'll do maybe a, a quick little um, demo of of the inter- featuring the interactivity of the book. Experiencing Nirvana, Grunge in Europe, 1989, is both a photo journal and a grunge rock microhistory An inside look into a crucial eight day period in the touring life of Nirvana and two other Seattle bands is seen through the eyes of myself, the founder of Sub Pop, the Seattle label that first signed Nirma- Nirvana in 1988. The dramatic eight days covered in this book from November 27th through December 4th, 1989, represent a turning point for Nirvana. In this brief period, the young band goes from breaking up in Rome to winning over the influential music press in London at Sub Pop's Lamefest UK Showcase, setting the stage for their imminent popularity. On November 27th, 1989, when my business partner, John Poneman, and I arrived to meet the band in Rome, they were almost finished with a grueling six-week tour of Europe. Although determined to promote their grungy, riff-heavy debut album, Bleach, their travels with fellow sub-pop act Tad had left them exhausted. Providing label support, John and I did our best to revive the spirits of a frustrated and downcast Kurt Cobain, who then managed to continue to London, where Nirvana played the biggest and most important show of their career to date. Lamefest UK held at the 2000 Capacity Astoria Theater, featured three Seattle sub-pop acts, Nirvana, Tad, and popular headliners Mudhoney. Although Nirvana opened the show, their heart-pounding performance went over the crowd as well as the powerful British press, who went on to proclaim that Nirvana was sub-pop's answer to the Beatles. It was then that the world's attention began to focus on the band that would have become the biggest rock act of their generation. Thank you.
0: All right, well, maybe I'll ask Bruce a few questions, and if he's kind enough to answer them, that would be really awesome. Thanks, Michael. Um, at the time, Nirvana was hardly the biggest band on sub pop. That was M- Mudhoney. Definitely. And maybe, and Tad was emerging as this, you know, outsized personality. Definitely. And so where where was Nirvana in the scheme of things as this tour that you documented started?
1: Nirvana was the perennial opening act. Uh, When we first signed Nirvana a year and a half prior in Seattle, uh, the first show that they performed at had four people in the crowd. It was myself, my business partner, the doorman, and uh, the bartender. That was about it. And over that year and a half period, they started writing better songs, uh, refining their performance. They were steadily getting better and better, but they were still essentially an open, opening act. And, I, and at the end of this book, you'll see that when they performed in the context of the, of the three-band bill, that they, they won over the very influential British press, and I really see that that show uh, it was kind of the beginning of their ascension as uh, international rock stars.
0: What, um, what do you think happened on that tour to Nirvana? Like, what, what there was something crystallized that vaulted them from this from the opening band thing to this
1: phenomenon. Yeah. Well, as as grueling as their tour was, I think spending five and a half weeks doing shows every night. Uh, had to have really uh, really forced them to to come to terms with their their talent and uh, I believe that their their sh- their live show really became refined on that tour
0: and and you and Jonathan wind up in Rome for a uh, you collide at this very dramatic point in in the tour um, that uh Almost spelled the end of the band, apparently. And there's, you know, there's pictures of that show. Uh, Bruce describes it in, you know, riveting uh, detail <laughs> about about what happened. Um, maybe just speak a little bit about that, and maybe perhaps tie it into that the cover photograph that we see, uh, yeah, behind well, us.
1: we'll see what we can do here. Uh, our plan was originally to go to London to network with uh, British publicists over there, uh, but we'd heard that. Kurt Cobain was extremely exhausted and was um, really having a difficult time. So we made a detour, went down to Rome, and within the first six hours of meeting up with the band, uh, we witnessed Kurt Cobain essentially having uh, a a nervous breakdown in the middle of their show. Uh, He climbed a PA stack and threatened to jump. This is after destroying his last guitar. After he got off stage, he began to question why he was playing music in the first place and essentially said that the band was over. Uh, My business partner at the time, John Planneman, went for a walk around the block with Kurt and told him we'd get him a new guitar. We'd take him out of the van and spend a day walking around Rome to just give him an opportunity to relax and uh, maybe revive himself. And By that morning, the band had agreed to continue to go on to the London show, which again would be the biggest show uh, in their career. Now we spent the day walking around Rome, seeing the sights and for whatever reason I was compelled to uh, kind of intuitively take this shot of Kurt. This is at the Roman Colosseum at one point uh, the Coliseum was able to, to house 50,000 spectators, so I, I thought it was a, a kind of an instant foreshadowing of his, uh, of his career. At the time, I felt he had kind of a, a Christ-like look and, and energy, and I, I think that's really what compelled me to take the shot.
0: There's a ton of uh, photographs in here which are all taken by Bruce, on a, on a nice Olympus camera that I have also that's actually a very nice machine um, and they're very much a, a time capsule they're an unbelievably key uh, part of this ebook um, if only because they document this time in indie rock where <laughs> i don't know if innocent is the right word <laughs> uh, there's certainly lots of non innocence being captured in those photos but it was definitely a different time. Um, maybe you could describe you know, what that time was and how it comes out in those photographs.
1: I feel that the book really captures a, uh, an, an interesting period in rock history. Uh, the pre-Nevermind era uh, of indie rock was, was quite different from the post-Nevermind era. At that point in time, most bands working in the indie circuit well they're essentially hobbyists so what you had was a network of hobbyists who uh, performed for the joy of performing they'd release records in units of two thousand or five thousand or maybe ten thousand and uh, it was really based on a sense of community a sense of sharing and Basically, doing it for the joy of performing. I think after Nevermind came Nevermind came out and Nirvana sold 10 million records, a lot of people got involved in the indie rock music scene for for other reasons than just performing for the joy of performing.
0: Uh, in uh, a really great uh, UK journalist named Keith Cameron writes a, a forward to this ebook, and in it he he talks about. Um, Uh, Lamefest, this huge uh, uh, concert with Mudhoney, Tad, and Nirvana, which is the climax of this book, and he says that uh, it it made people feel part of a social movement, as opposed to just being spectators. And I'm wondering, um, what what do you think that social movement was, and you know, how did it, uh, how did that correspond to uh, the independent music and uh, steering clear of the corporate ogre and all that stuff.
1: Well, uh, indie music in general was very inclusive, but I think what the Seattle bands offered was a a much um, more, let's say, celebratory uh, live per- performance. So the shows were much more physical, they were much more intense, and they were much more participatory. So you had a lot, uh, lot more interaction between the crowd and the bands. Um, there's one scene in the book where I was in Portsmouth, UK at a Mudhoney show and every time I snapped the camera, there was somebody flying by the, uh, the band and it just gives you a, a feel for how, how inclusive uh, that, that scene really was.
0: What were the size of the crowds at these shows, especially the Nirvana and Tad shows? I mean, was it you know uh, huge arenas full of people all hailing the next thing in rock and roll?
1: Yeah, classically these clubs um, would would out would be open to uh, an audience of one or two hundred. I really like that shot right there. So. The culture really emphasized uh, an an intimacy that um, kids listening to uh, more commercial music that weren't really familiar with.
0: Another thing that, uh, a really great thing about this book is that it points out that uh, touring is a lot more than playing the gigs. There's so much that happens in the other Twenty-three hours of the day, and I, that's what a, a lot of what this book is about.
1: I, I really love this shot right here. Yeah. I think that's that's just amazing. Yeah, a lot of. Uh, I, I believe the book really gives shows different facets of what it's like to to be on the road trying to promote a record. There's a we have a whole chapter of the band in in rough trade, doing it in store signing records, loading up the van. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different facets to the, to the job than, than Meet CI, and I, I think some of this is captured here. Here's some shots from uh, the Rough Trade record store, which at the time was the most famous uh, indie store in the, in the world.
0: That must have been a thrill to be at the Rough Trade store for the guy from Sub Pop in Seattle.
1: Yeah, it was a thrill for me. When uh, I, s- I started, as a zine writer in 1980, publishing a uh, small indie rock zine, and the only person who would really distribute it was was Rough Trade. So they were able to get my my little zine in in stores all all over the world. And I've always had a real fun connection with Rough Trade. But
0: what a what a small world that is. That you know that Rough Trade is the thing that enables this this label, and then you wind up there at an in store, you know. Two three years later, something like that. You know, that's how small
1: I think that world was. Right. The two records this woman's holding up. The the record in the in the left, in her, I'm sorry, in her right hand, was, uh, was only pressed. That was a Nirvana record. Was only pressed in a, in an edition of three thousand records, which at the time, was was pretty normal.
0: So how many dollars is she holding in her right hand now?
1: Um. Probably $1,000,
0: yeah. (laughs) Um, At one point, you say that the the bands made their mark on Europe. How did Europe make its mark on those bands?
1: Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think being in Europe gave the band some insight into... Uh, ooh, a more refined way of doing things, you know that life life could be better, accommodations could be better, uh, press coverage could be uh, more efficient. Uh, John Peel re- worked for the BB, for BBC One. Uh, his radio show was broadcast all th- all throughout the UK. So the bands witnessed a a, a media system that was more immediate and more powerful than the one in the United States. Uh,
0: Another thing that I I was thinking about was how um, you took Kurt around on that day off in Rome and saw the Coliseum and parts of the Vatican and things like that and I I don't think he'd been out of the country you know even and probably a lot of the people in those bands had not even ever been out of the country before and here they are being really clobbered with it with Europe
1: Yes, I, I believe that uh, that day in Rome was probably very inspiring for Kurt. I mean, if you think about the town that he grew up in, Aberdeen, his logging community. He moved to Olympia, which is a relatively small college town who's 22 years old. And to be able to travel and see some of the world's greatest cities, um... I can only uh, believe was a, was a great inspiration for him. Going to St. Peter's Basilica uh, was, was an incredible experience. It's the world's largest Christian church, uh, extremely ornate, uh, very awesome, and, and quite different from the, the inside of, uh, of uh, these intimate rock clubs he was checking out.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you, you, you call this a, a micro-history. And I'm wondering how the uh, this micro history is maybe uh, analogous or or has pertained somehow to the macro history. How does how does this ascent of Nirvana kind of uh, play off what eventually happened to them? Well,
1: you know, even though there's there's only eight days covered in this band, there's there's a lot of drama. There's Conflict and resolution and um, achievement, and this band started from very humble beginnings and became one of the most popular bands in the world and You see that happen in this book as well it, over this eight day period, going from playing shows of eight to one hundred to two hundred uh, dealing with uh, all sorts of uh, Private conflicts, uh, only to end up being celebrated in front of a large audience. So I I, I see it as a uh, as parallel.
0: It, it's like I you know it's it's kind of the elephant in the room for me. But I mean it's it's kind of eerie that Kurt did have that breakdown in Rome and then. Uh, towards the end of his life attempted yeah. suicide in the same city.
1: It's yeah, that was a very strange deja vu for me when I heard about his uh, suicide attempt in Rome uh, in 94.
0: Um, what... Um, w- why do this as an ebook? Why not do a print book?
1: Well, uh, we may potentially do a print book in the future, but I, I have to say I'm really excited about this format Uh, primarily because you have instant global distribution you have kids in Japan who can download this in a couple minutes then tweet their friend in Brazil. In fact this book's only been out for for three days we've been getting tweets in Russian and Japanese we've been getting posts from Peru and Brazil on our Facebook homepage and we only finished the book a week ago okay so if we'd gone to uh, a regular publisher this book would have been in production for a year to a year and a half, finally filter out, and uh, theoretically be distributed around the world, but let's face it, kids in Fiji would probably not get access to it. So I'm very excited about the distribution possibilities. Also, I I really feel that the, the photos look better in this format. You know, there's a richer color palette, the illumination that comes through the photos, Uh, gives them more vitality so I think it looks better the distributions better and also the the interactivity of it is makes it uh, I don't know makes it a lot more interesting I have a 14 year old son at home who is you know he's a brilliant kid but he's kind of allergic to books Uh, likes to stare at screens and I kinda had him in the back of my mind when I was piecing this together Uh, Of course, I have another daughter who's 19 who's kind of allergic to screens. She's very analog and cuts and pastes things, but I think I can convince her that this is a cool project.
0: Um, Where were these photos living for all these years?
1: Well, you know, they were in a cardboard box in my attic for 20 years. Uh, For a long time, I had a hard time even listening to Nirvana's music uh, because of Kurt's tragic ending. It was uh, was a pretty traumatic experience. And it's only been recently that I've even felt compelled to listen to the music and go back and relive some of that history. When I pulled the photos out, I had remembered the Kurt Christ photo from Rome, and I thought that was a really powerful image. And... uh, I wanted to share that with people. When I w- went through the entire scope of images, though, I realized that they, they told a story. There was a really interesting narrative there, and I felt compelled to sh- share that story with people. It was uh, essentially saw a nirvana story with, with a joyful ending.
0: And yeah, and that uh, uh, can't be stressed enough. I mean, their music was pretty transcendent. It, Kurt's story, you know, overwhelms a lot of the, the story. But if you saw a Nirvana concert, or you saw Tad or Mudhoney, they were those concerts were just fun. I mean, it was there's a lot of stuff being exercised in the lyrics and stuff, uh, and it was pretty heavy music. But most of all, it was just a great time.
1: <laughs> it was a great time and I think uh, a lot of these photos really show that. I was, I went, in going back and looking at these photos, really, I was really intrigued with a lot of the crowd shots. You know, just seeing what people looked like and how they were responding to the music. And uh, every show was, was pretty much a celebration. And that's how I like to remember the band.
0: Yeah, I w- yeah looking at the photos, you really do get a sense of a different time uh, historically, music, historically, culturally, you know all kinds of things, and uh yeah, I'm wondering how you it compares with today. you know you don 't see a whole lot of moshing now, sometimes you do, but it's it 's a different vibe now,
1: yeah, I think people seem to be in general a little more standoffish, perhaps a little more jaded from uh, information overload
0: um do you think how do you think do you think people will? ever recover from that do you think or or is that you know are those the days that are captured in this amazing thing um, gone you know will we ever get that back do you think
1: I'm sure it's happening right now in some corner of the world (laughs) I'm looking forward to checking that out
0: Um, another really cool thing about this book is the press and that's particularly relevant because the press was so powerful in the UK and Europe Um, what do you think that adds, you know, all that, st- the press at the, at the end? What, what, is the, what part of the story does that color in?
1: Well, essentially I saw this as kind of a, a history text of sorts, and my friend Dan Burke and I went the extra mile and licensed a lot of uh, British press from that period just to add more dimension and context to the story. Uh, in the pre-internet world, it was actually very difficult to get information about your band out to the world. And the best way to do that was to go to London because London had three weekly newspapers who were in fierce competition with one another. And it was virtually guaranteed that if you went to England, you could get in one of these magazines and develop your press kit, and your name and reputation would be amplified throughout the world. Now you can do it through your own homepage and uh, through Facebook and so forth, but in the pre-internet era, it's actually very difficult to let the world know that you even existed. Um,
0: I, I think uh, I'm, I'm tapped out of questions. I think maybe we could turn it over to the, uh, to the audience, maybe. Just raise your hand, I'll come on over. I have a microphone right here. Oh, I see one in the front row, and then we're gonna go over to the second. Have any of the musicians or the sub-pop folks who are involved in this time, and maybe pictured in the book, have you talked to them about their reaction to seeing this book?
1: We've we, we really kept this project um, uh, on the down low for, for quite a while, and we've just recently opened it, opened up. So I know that a lot of these reactions are gonna be coming in, and my I anticipate that uh, my friends are gonna be kind of blown away because they had no idea I had these pictures. Yeah,
0: um, yes, I'm sure people who were around at the time, you know, Seattle people will have a a massive blast from the past and they'll be so amazed that these amazing pictures even exist and your recollections are really vivid. And um, well, actually, now I have two questions. One is, how did you, I mean, there's a lot of really specific memories in there. How did you recall all that stuff? Were you keeping a diary or yeah, did you?
1: Well, I just actually have a very good long-term memory. And to be honest, because this was such a powerful moment in my life, I actually relived this quite a bit. And uh, I oftentimes went back and remembered s- some of these situations. I mean, uh, the whole scene with Kurt climbing the PA stack and threatening to jump uh, is... Permanently etched in my memory. You know, I it's like I can completely go back there and re-experience the whole thing. And I mean,
0: so yes, people people of that era will look at these pictures and have a a blast from the past and and feel a rush of recognition. But what do you hope um, someone who's uh, you know was born after all this even happened gets out of reading this thing?
1: Well. I I hope that they're inspired by the, the, the culture that's here, by the, the sense of community that's conveyed. Um, seeing these groups working together and traveling together, uh, performing at in intimate shows, and just the, the energy that's created in that culture I find uh, really inspiring. I also know that a lot of young people really uh, still listen to Nirvana's music. Um, it's become kind of a modern classic rock, as it were, and ultimately, I really feel that uh, young people will be able to tap into this story and connect with a young artist uh, at a, a more innocent period of time, where um, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of joy expressed, really, as, uh, at these shows and in just the relationships of the artists.
0: Yeah, uh, that's. That's what I got out of it was, I mean, Kurt was a really relatable guy. uh, And I think later on he got pushed up into uh, this cartoonish icon. But uh, in these pictures and, you know, early on, it was very obvious he was just a regular person, a very talented regular person. But you see, you know, that comes out in this book a lot. And I think you humanize him really nicely.
1: Thank you very much. Well, I just want to point out this photo here, Mark Arm. Look at his reaction. Now, some people have said that this show uh, really wasn't... Nirvana really wasn't very good and that nobody was impressed. And this is what you'll read in some of the Nirvana bios. And I'm flipping through these photos. Dan, could you go back to the last photo that we just saw? Okay, look at that reaction. This is the opening band. And then go back to Mark's reaction, okay? So then you you have the singer from from Mudhoney basically looking, look at that. I mean, it's almost staged, right? Mark, could you express complete, you know, uh, it it just cracks me up how how this story really came, fell into place there and uh, Mud Honey and Mark are obviously endorsing the band and going I cannot believe the reaction to this to this show you see it right in his look it's it's amazing
0: and that that actually has a lot of a lot of impact because Mark Arm is not the most easily impressed guy he's quite the connoisseur and he's a pretty skeptical you know guy and uh, for him to be, have, make that. I'm blown away kind of face is pretty impressive. We have uh, another question in the second row. I believe I saw a hand up. There it is. Okay. Uh,
1: This is kind of a random question, but uh, what have you been listening to lately? Like anything knock your socks off recently? Okay, I'm going to mention one singer who I really like right now. His name is Sean Hayes from the Bay Area. And he's an indie artist. And he somehow melds together soul, folk, and for lack of a better term, indie rock. And I think he's got the best voice out there. If I had to listen to one new artist, it would be Sean Hayes. I love his voice. I see a few more in the front row. We'll start in the middle, work our way back out. Hey, so you mentioned these images were in a cardboard box in your attic what else is up there? And do you have yeah. any other plans for future <laughs> projects like this? That, that's a good question. I mentioned earlier that uh, I was a zine writer. I actually put together um, the first indie rock zine in the United States uh, in in 1980. At that time, there was a lot of m- more stylized punk rock zines being published. But my zine was the first zine to to say, to look at music through the lens of independent publishing. So I reviewed specifically records that were being put out independently. And what I w- would like to do is create a digital index of those zines so people could go back and, and review some of this very obscure information, a lot of which is not available on the Internet.
0: And and the name of that zine was?
1: That was Subterranean Pop.
0: Hence the name. A little history for you. Yeah. Uh, the Second question in the front row.
1: Who was Nirvana listening to during this period? Who was e- influencing e- them? Excellent question, and uh, I, I address that in the book. Here, they were listening to a lot of Pixies, and uh, in in s- there were special times when nobody was listening. When they would listen to Queen really loud in their in their van, but. Uh, Kurt had just been introduced to to what he called cutie bands, which he got turned on to by Calvin Johnson from K Records, and that would include artists like Shonen Knife and the Vaselines, and music that was a little more sing-songy, almost felt like lullabies. But I would say that his favorite band at the time was the Pixies. I also wanted to mention, at the end of the book, and this is one of the reasons I really like this digital format, is I, I put together a, a playlist of 50 songs I heard at shows and parties. So this is, it's kind of a random list, mostly indie stuff from the late 80s, but this is the kind of music that was that was being played in after-hours shows, that people were playing in, in uh, where the bands were playing in their vans, and so forth. And I set it up, I indicated uh, the region the music was from, and I love the fact that People can just go to iTunes and check it out. Now, you can't do that with a hard copy book. And I'm really happy with that. Yeah, you mentioned a few
0: covers that Nirvana, or at least two, that Nirvana did and the importance of that. Oh, yes.
1: Uh, there's, there's another aspect to, to this, uh, this project. There's a, we've got an interactive map that also has uh, various data, including set lists from their shows. So when you, when you review the set lists, you'll see that at almost every show, they would jam on different covers. So Kurt Cobain was a real student of alternative music. You could see that he really loved sharing tunes with people. Uh, they covered Captain Beef, Beefheart, B-52s, Stooges, Chuck Berry. So every show that they performed at, they'd pull out a different cover. Uh, Kurt really enjoyed talking about music and sharing new, undiscovered music with people, and uh, that was one of his true joys. At the end of the book, when he got on stage in London at the Astoria show, he took great pride in announcing that the Vaselines were the greatest band in the world, and he performed one of their songs. And they literally only sold about 2,000 records. This is a great case of uh, this is a great example of how the indie culture works. You take uh typically the this network of hobbyists would take great pride in sharing the uh, the greatest but most obscure band they could think of, and you would just keep trying to top each other
0: and uh well and and later on kurt of course wore, wore t shirts of all those bands as prominently as possible uh but that was uh, that was partially because the internet hadn't been invented yet right so people had to that was the way you shared information.
1: That's the way you shared information was uh, through zines and just going to shows and hearing covers and so forth. Music fans had to work a lot harder back then to dig up obscure music, um, for, for better or worse.
0: We have time for one more question. I see another one in the front row.
1: So you mentioned that uh, the night you signed the band, there were only four of you in the room. Where did you hear about the show? How'd you hear about the band? We, we, we set up the show. We Yeah, I guess our promotional job wasn't too good. Basically, uh, John had called down to the Central Tavern and asked for, for a slot, and they said, well, we really don't have anything. Well, can you stick them on 8 o'clock? On a Sunday night, which is, let's face it, that's probably the worst time you could possibly do a show. So it was essentially an audition.
0: And did, you heard something in there.
1: We heard a band with an. We heard a guy with an incredible voice who was still working on his songwriting, but uh, absolutely had had a, a fantastic voice.
0: Yeah. So what was the difference between the band that you saw at Lamefest and the band that you saw? At the tavern.
1: Night and and day. The band I saw at the Central Tavern, uh, basically they stared at their shoes the entire time. We listened to their set. We didn't think they really had any good songs, but we thought, well, they do this one shocking blue cover called Love Buzz. That's pretty good. I'll tell you what, guys. Go in the studio and do do that cover song. We'll squeeze out a single, and, and, and we'll see how people react to it. And it actually got an incredible reaction. We wound up putting bleach, put putting out bleach, and his songwriting just kept getting better and better and better, and their performances kept getting better.
0: Yeah. So, what was the difference at Lame Fest? What were they doing differently?
1: Well, they were, uh, they, a they had better material, and b they were moving around a lot more, and uh, Kurt was, leaping up in the air and landing on his knees and. Uh, let me see. He took the guitar that we purchased him and pitched it to Chris Novoselic, who then swung his bass around like a baseball bat and destroyed their guitar. And they kind of put on a show.
0: So, I mean, this is the guitar,
1: the Fender guitar that you bought him in 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 Rome. In Rome, so that yeah. That was like six days prior, and I was just thinking, I was just hoping. Look, we're gonna get you this guitar. Just please, 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 don't trash it until. The big showcase.
0: Oh, oh, oh! So, so it was. It was okay. I mean, this is the guitar that basically, you know, saved his career, and the then guitar, he destroys r- it.
1: Exactly. So he he started up his sh- showmanship flourishes there.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, we I guess we can
0: we can wrap it up. Um, thanks for coming, everybody.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.